we have a poverty of choice for women. All the data shows us that women have a serious poverty of choice and poverty of choice, not just in terms of who you marry, how much sex you can have, who you can have sex with, what kinds of jobs can you aspire for? Uh, how can you access public space? How much disposable income do you have? India is in the bottom five in the world when it comes to women's economic freedoms. And I think given that poverty of choice, the easiest thing, the incentive for most women in these kinds of honor patriarchal cultures is to just give in to patriarchy, to gain what I call a patriarchal dividends, you know, to just earn whatever benefits, right, through marriage, through a happy marriage. And this is not said in judgment, but these are trade-offs that many women, you see this in the book, are forced to make. Shreyana Bhattacharya is an economist in the World Bank's Social Protection and Labor Unit for South Asia. She's also the author of bestseller book, Desperately Seeking Sharuk, India's Lonely Young Women and the Search for Intimacy and Independence. She has also co-authored a paper titled Through the Magnifying Glass, Women's Work and Labor Force Participation in Urban Delhi. We are so excited to speak with Shreyana today. I know that you and I are both huge fans mm -hmm. of her book mm -hmm. and everything that she has written about in it. Within what we just heard, what really resonated with you, Aditi? You know, the part where she said that because of the poverty of choice, because the choices we have are so limited, is that women across the intersections have learned how to compromise with the patriarchy. And the thing that stays with me in this is that every woman then is experiencing a different kind of patriarchy. The pressures of, you know, living in a patriarchal world are different for every single woman out there. And it's clarion call to be less judgmental of each other as women because we do not know the version of patriarchy that they are dealing with. I think that's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I think so. I think sometimes we tend to judge one another for the choices we make. Yeah. But... One thing Shreyana has advocated for is that you don't know what that woman in front of you, what she's had to grapple with in making those choices. You know, you don't know what's going on at home. You don't know what kind of pressure she has from family. You don't know what kind of pressure she has in navigating different spaces or different things. So one thing that I really love is that she really talks about let's really take down judgment that we have about one another's choices. I... Love that. What do you think about her choice <laughs> to use Shah Rukh Khan as this incredible vehicle to explore, you know, basically women's economic lives like women in the workforce? She's basically used Shah Rukh Khan as this vehicle to, to look at women in the workforce. What do you think of that? I feel seen. And I know that you're like, what, Aditi, you feel seen through something that happened with yeah. Shah Rukh? Like, yes, yeah. I feel seen, right? Because, you know, a lot of the research that happens around women in India, and I guess for most developing countries, is always sort of supposed to address the problems and the travails of the larger mass, right? Mm. The most disenfranchised. And that's the way, frankly, ideally it should be. But with Shreyana's research and the using of Shah Rukh Khan as a tool to understand women in the workforce better, I feel like it's a light that shines back on the urban 
working woman and done through the lens of Shahrukh Khan we all know Shahrukh Khan is an icon if you don't know Shahrukh Khan is an icon stop it no <laughs> and um yeah and he sort of represents that india right i mean the the rise of his career all the way to the film choices that he's made you know it's all coincided with a very interesting historical time in india i mean of course and it's fascinating it's it's just at the end of the day it's looking at something through bollywood look man you could like filter murder yeah. statistic through bollywood and i'd be like now i'm interested <laughs> in murders suddenly so, i mean she's really yeah. hit upon the magical formula to get people to care which is shahrukh khan oh i really think so and i think things like what a lot of what we talk about like labor force participation rates and different economics issues that can be alienating but i think using that lens of shahrukh khan is ingenious cuz it's a way for her to open up these discussions to so many more yeah. people and so many more women i definitely recommend her book and we are so excited to be joined with her right now this is like honestly my fan girl moment desperately seeking shahrukh is one of those books that you know that i've i've honestly read it like four times i think at this point it's the book now that's like dog eared in the side of my room because i constantly go back to it to read certain you know chapters certain places so thank you so much for joining us for this the first question we wanted to ask you was what made you choose shahrukh khan as an entry point into this conversation about women and work Firstly, Aditi, Christina, it's a, such a pleasure to be here, and I think you know if the book is out there and is being read, Aditi, you in particular, I have you to thank. When I finished the book, and I sent it to a bunch of very serious economists, and I said, "Well, you know, this is about women and their labors in the Indian economy, and how women's labors are being steadily erased, and the change that can happen in women's lives when they start to have." their own jobs but guess what i'm going to do this through the prism of women's enthusiasm for shahrukh khan i realized it would be dishonest on to write a book about women's experiences the ones that i had witnessed through my own research and field work on women's employment uh, for 15 years without acknowledging very clearly the role shahrukh khan had to play in the research process none of the women would speak to me had it not been for him the only reason they entertained the fact that i was interviewing them repeatedly over a decade as you know in the book i do is because i entered into it through a conversation around their pleasures and joy around shahrukh khan as opposed to this very traditional social science lens of hey i don't know you but i'm this brahmin scholar and i can come and ask you a bunch of really personal questions and it's perfectly fine I owe Mr. Shahrukh Khan the fact that I abandoned those mental models of how a survey is done and I think it's a work of honesty perhaps for me to do it this way so that's one and I think the other reason is I'm really tired of a kind of social science and you know social science is an elite business it still is because of who gets to go to school in India who gets to study who defines what is worthy of study as well and i wanted to answer some very serious questions you know about social change about women's employment but i wanted to do it through a, what i felt was a truly feminine lens and you know we always keep saying that women's modes of inquiry and investigation feminist modes of inquiry and investigation are very different from traditional modes and i think the book is just one example of that which is what if you started to look at the economy the way women understand it 
and the way many women understand it who ne- aren't necessarily you know trained in the language of feminism or economics is whether i can watch my favorite actor whether i'm loved you know these are questions of the economy that they ask and i just wanted to liberate myself from that old boy social science club and so the book is the way it is it was a risk but it's a risk i can take and i'm really grateful i have and i will forever i mean i am in love with shahrukh khan but i will forever be so indebted because i think his icon just opened up vistas in you know what social science we call field work which really wouldn't exist had i just gone in with a very traditional typical way of investigation wow and did you meet him as part of the process you know i have to tell you something christina i did not want to interview him for two reasons one is the book is not about him as you know the book is it's not even i wouldn't even call it forget a biography it's not even a peopled biography of him he is essentially a research device that allows women to talk about their access to money you know the money they need to be able to watch him the media they need to be able to watch him the free open space and lack of guilt that you need to have fun when you're watching your favorite actor he is essentially a device but i did meet him eventually after 6 months i think of the book being out and uh, he wrote a note for me which funnily became news because i put it up as just some innocuous instagram post and he is just the kindest and most heartwarming human being and i wish him nothing but the best and i think the country should treat him you know with far more love than already the love that he has and uh, i'm just very grateful that the book finally reached his bookshelf there's a picture of that that's part of my post and the last thing i'll say on this i realize i've said a lot is that you know one of the things that really struck me in his response to the book was that he understood that the book is not about him and i think he appreciated it as well he understood what did he say what did he say in the note that he wrote to you uh he he thanked me for finally putting him to some good use uh that's what the note uh, says uh which you know i mean it's quite i mean it's classic it is, it's, sharukh khan yeah it's classic. it's funny it's like it's this thing and and he said that it was heartening to understand the economics of things because we actually you know he's a student of economics as well we shouldn't forget that he was a topper at delhi university in economics he said it was heartening to understand the economics of things in a way that's actually fun and accessible and of course then you know the kind words of thanking everyone who's been involved in this project but you know the thing about the whole experience was it just it felt like the right way to end perhaps this journey like the whole it's been a 15 year process of writing this book and it is a love letter to all women who decide to deviate from very conformist scripts of femininity in india it's a love letter for my grandmother who hated the way bengali economists write economics where like most people can't understand it and it is a love letter to sharukh khan and it felt like that that love letter had finally reached him and yeah it was really special please make him prime minister everyone it's high time <laughs> this particular episode we want to talk about choice and what is it about sharukh khan and economics and actually you know a woman's working life that connects to give it this sort of like abundance of choice okay so let's take a step back right you know i say this in the book we do live you know in what you know many sociologists anthropologists call honor cultures right in india where women's bodies women's experiences what they do with their bodies carries so much charge there's so much surveillance and i think in that world which is a world of patriarchal surveillance 
we have a poverty of choice for women. All the data shows us that women have a serious poverty of choice and poverty of choice, not just in terms of who you marry, how much sex you can have, who you can have sex with, what kinds of jobs can you aspire for? Uh, how can you access public space? How much disposable income do you have? India is in the bottom five in the world when it comes to women's economic freedoms. And I think given that poverty of choice, the easiest thing, the incentive for most women in these kinds of honor patriarchal cultures is to just give in to patriarchy, to gain what I call a patriarchal dividends, you know, to just earn whatever benefits, right, through marriage, through a happy marriage. And this is not said in judgment, but these are trade-offs that many women, you see this in the book, are forced to make. Because if you cannot live on your own, if the police will not help you, if the city that you live in is not safe to live on your own, the family is largely the only form of security most women have, then that choice is a bit of the choice is, you know, which kind of man do I marry and how do I sort of settle into it and, you know, earn dividends from patriarchy. I think all the women in my book, and this is something I realized through complete accident, I'm not making an empirical claim, but it's certainly a claim in the book, is that all these women have deviated from that. They've said to hell with these dividends from patriarchy. We want to earn our own dividends. You know, we want our own joys. We want our own money. We, we want to do things on our own terms. Some of their mothers try and counsel them to think otherwise, but they still resist. And each one of them ends up in very different places. You know, even if you don't, even if you abandon patriarchal dividends on the surface, you could still be in a very traditional marriage. But I think when these women take that risk, it's very risky to say, I'm walking away from these dividends of patriarchy. I'm going to do, I'm going to deviate from this very conformist femininity. There's a lot of loneliness in exploring now these new choices. And I say in the book, right, that our modern life now then opens up new ways to find mates, money, you know, have experiences. They can be fun. They have their own, you know, thrill. But there's also bone-crushing loneliness related to that. Women will say, well, if I'm independent, men don't like me. If I'm independent, men think commitment to me is something that they're really not interested in. There's a very strong way your love life is also being interlaced with your economic life. And when all of that happens, and plus women are doing all the emotional and household labor in the country, we are again in the bottom five when it comes to men helping in housework. I think we would be in sub-zero when it came to men doing emotional work in our country. And I think in that world, women are just exhausted. And they're so exhausted, these women, the ones who say we're going to opt out and try and, you know, explore new choices, which are very different from what, you know, femininity, a good Indian woman is supposed to be. And in that world, then Shahrukh is escape. He is relief. When you're tired, you look at him and you smile. For some people, he is actually encouragement. And, you know, so each of these women are coming at him for very different reasons. But I think the core root of it is because they've sort of said to hell with this apparent choice that I have to get married and settle down. Maybe I do want to marry, but I want to marry on my own terms. I want to have children on my own terms. I want to negotiate my marriage on my own terms. Or maybe I want to stay single on my own terms. And all of these women are exploring more choice for themselves. And as they start to do that, it is an exhausting, difficult process in a country that's honestly also not used to it. Shah Rukh Khan is, you know, an injection of energy, enthusiasm, fun, joy, when you feel really exhausted just fighting patriarchy on a daily basis. 
So I think that's the way it all sort of lines up. And I think this is something that I'm very committed to actually exploring. I mean, one through this book, but I think in anything that I do in the future as well. Yeah. So interesting. And thinking about this theme of choice, something I found so fascinating in the book was this idea of the hidden tax of choice. In some ways, we feel like there is more choice these days, but I think a lot of what your book revealed, at least to me, was that is a lot of it is a huge illusion. And I was wondering if you can tell us about this idea of the hidden tax of choice. Yeah, this is actually work from one of my favorite economists, Sandal Mulayanathan. He's just encouraged anyone, I think anyone who studies economics knows his work. And anyone who doesn't, shame on you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I would encourage people who are not even interested in economics, just go look up. On the hidden tax, in fact, he has an entire beautiful op-ed in the New York Times, which really spoke to me. And he was writing actually much more in the Western context. And essentially, one of the arguments he makes is that, you know, when you look at women's professional lives, he says that, you know, when women do well for themselves, we have a way as a society to tax them, not in money, but in feelings, in emotions. You know, other economics language would say you're extracting emotional rents, right, from women for doing well, for daring to do well. And each time this happens, you minimize women's joys in their professional achievements. And you see so many examples of this in the book, particularly for women from the emerging middle class. So, you know, for example, the accountant who ends up getting this really prestigious job in the Delhi government, but her family will never talk to her about her job. They'll talk to the men in the family about their jobs and what's happening in their work lives, give them the space to explore that, appreciate it, acknowledge it. But they hide her job in sort of public conversation because in a funny way, they are slightly ashamed of it. They would prefer if she were married and had that job. And that is a choice she does not want to make. There are other kinds of hidden taxes, which aren't necessarily what Sendhil talks about, but I describe them in the book. You know, premiums that women pay to be more safe in the houses they live in. So for a single woman like myself, who's super elite, upper caste, all of those things, even for me to find a place which is easy for me to live in with landlords who will not, you know, chase after me to know every detail about who's coming into my house. Usually that means that to live comfortably and to live safely, you will probably end up paying a higher premium to live in a neighborhood where rents are much higher than what you would like to. It's just this is something I hear from single women all the time. You know, I always hear in sort of big cosmopolitan cities that, well, the best landlords are in areas where foreigners live and foreigners pay high rents. So we end up living in areas where rents are high. It's just something I hear a lot. And I think going back to this idea of a tax is that, you know, this is something if we could visualize us extracting this and it is not some random person who is unknown to you who is extracting this. These are your closest, dearest loved ones. These are boyfriends, fathers, mothers, best friends even, women friends. It makes the tax so much worse, right? Because this is your intimate sphere. These are people who are closest to you, who you think will support you. But they all also operate from these codes of, we've all socialized and internalized these codes. And so we play them out. And in fact, in the book, what you see is all these women not only paying the tax, but then actually checking their loved ones, telling them that, hey, look, you're taxing me. So in the case of the accountant, she has a very compromised and difficult conversation with her parents. And you see it because they're so obsessed with her marriage. And it happens in very subtle ways. None of these women on the surface would be called feminist activists. But to me, actually, this is 
the most important kind of activism which happens in your personal sphere because that is actually the seat of social change and you see all these women when they address these taxes they're able to change the way their immediate loved ones think about the role of women in society i wonder if we can also take a step back and look at choice across class the book is really organized and broken down into sort of three main sections looking at women who occupy the most privileged class, the emerging middle class, and then women working, you know, as in the working class, domestic workers, the unorganized sector. So I wonder, I know that that is a big question, but also your book has covered so much, but how do we understand, is there hope in different sections of society? I'm very hopeful about gender norms in India. I, I actually, I'm not sort of all gloom and doom about it. And part of the reason I'm hopeful, despite all the depressing statistics, is that I see everywhere around me, and particularly the women I followed, and even in our casual everyday lives, women who expect so much more from the world, from men, from themselves, than I think a generation before us. And I think, I mean, to be cute, I think Shahrukh in the book just sort of captures a part of that. I think, you know, he sort of this... You know, people always say, like, how can you expect a man like Shahrukh? I don't think any of these women are expecting a man like Shahrukh, but what they're expecting is reciprocity. And I think that's a very, very radically different expectation. So we are in a new equilibrium of expectations. And you can call them silly, which I know many people do, or expecting a guy to just do housework, that's just foolish, or a guy to, like, do emotional labor, what does that mean, or with wide open arms. But these are now expectations that I think an entire generation of women have, irrespective of class, mind you. I saw these expectations. You know, there's so many mother-daughter pairs in the book. All of them, the younger girls, girls of our generation, the girls younger than us, expectations have just zoomed. So I'm very excited by that. Like, I do think we've entered an equilibrium of, you know, enhanced expectations. Now, when I start to look at different class groups, I think then those expectations and your ability to then push through on those expectations, right, make those expectations match your reality is different, obviously, based on how much money you have, how much privilege you have, how much safety your class will accord you and your caste will accord you. And what I mean by that is, you know, take the example of me. I mean, I'm a person in the book. I expect far more in my personal life and my economic life than my mother did in hers. I will not make compromises that I know she did. And as a consequence, I can earn on my own as a, you know, upper caste woman who's had a really good education to live on my own and to pay some of these premiums and to be very happily single. I will not settle. I will not settle at all. I will only like seek the kind of love that I want. I will only have the kind of like sex I want to. I am not interested in capitulating, right? And my class allows me that. So my expectations are more and I can do it because of my socioeconomic background. But I think what's most interesting is this new middle class, first generation women to ever study in their families, to hold a job outside the home. Their expectations, I mean, my expectations have moved up from my mom, but my mom was already quite empowered relative to where her, you know, grandmother was, so on. But this new middle class, the expectations are just, I mean, you can't even compare. They're like living in a different planet of what they want from the world compared to their mothers. And finally, when you go to the precariat, right, like what we call the working class, you know, domestic workers, 
barely earning a minimum wage i think there to be honest a lot of that choice to be able to sort of follow through on these enhanced expectations still depend on the family you have to rely on the family and then it's a real toss of luck honestly do you have supportive brothers do you have supportive you know parents do you have supportive husbands but i think what i'm trying to say to you in this sort of long answer is that i think expectations have changed cross class but your ability to follow through and your willingness to follow through on the choices now that you have in front of you if your expectations of life and what you expect has changed economically in particular is really mediated through the privileges you bear through caste through your own socioeconomic location but i think we are living in a world where men good luck to them i think there's a serious crisis of masculinity unfolding around us because i think because of this because women's expectations have just become so different from what men are used to and i don't think we have a conversation around masculinity that actually starts to address it so yeah the crisis of masculinity is something that i think in my friends group we discuss that a lot because you know it is true is that half the men don't know what to do with us and you know the remaining half are sort of living on the because they see that we've made what are conventionally empowered choices and then they sort of think that that is a certain kind of way and they're following you on a path that even you don't know very well what you're walking on and i think even dating right now in your 30s is a minefield i mean like you know the best have been sort of i guess taken off the street and tamed by our sisters so good luck with that but a lot <laughs> of them you know are just like they're living in this like 1980s like porn film or not i mean i wouldn't say porn but like like a shady business Pawn. Okay, I said I said pawn. Yeah, they're living in that movie, and I'm like, it's true. <laughs> I like I do not know what to do when I like I meet a man my age, and I'm like, are you serious? Like, I mean, there seems to be no joy left in life. Everything is to be taken super seriously, and they don't know what to do with a woman. They're like, how do I? Do, I'm supposed to be friends with her? That's so weird. What do I do? Like, sorry, okay, this is not <laughs> podcast friendly language. <laughs> But you know one thing I do want to sort of say one thing though I feel like so yes we have this very lopsided weird meeting market which by the way is not just true of India this is true of the world right now like economists say that all equilibrium like when you are trying to change societies it is a set of repeated games and repeated interactions right like it's only if we constantly keep having the same argument the same conversation there's a constant kind of you know giving and taking and exchanging that's only when things will change if we just live in the world that we were in earlier it's boring right but the interesting thing to me is that even in my terrible relationship with the guy i call the aristocrat i mean at the end of the day he did give me permission to write about him and you know i'm to be honest i think i am a better person for it and i don't think everything has to be instrumentalized and that you have to be better for it or you have to gain from it but i do think that what we are seeing on tinder on bumble on all these like platforms in life is a churn of gender norms i think especially girls and women start to expect more there will be a point i think where either men will then meet you in backlash which is happening but there are also men who will meet you in actual reform who will think about changing who will start to update their priors and i don't want anyone to listen to us and think oh god you know this is just 
so loveless. It's not, you know. But I think what it requires is a very open and honest conversation. And what worries me sometimes about a lot of elite men, upper caste men I meet, I'm going to sort of caveat this with that, is that there is this kind of blinkered vision when it comes to a lot of women's experiences. You know, I keep hearing in the private sector that the only problem that women have in the workforce is safety. Like safety is a problem. Why is safety a problem? It's because of masculinity. Of course, there's infrastructure, but there is a whole set of social norms around safety. How do cities become safer when women start occupying public spaces more? What does that require? That requires men to cede some public space, you know, be it on the metro, be it outside, be in a cinema hall. And I think this very hard work of looking within into your own behaviors, be it in your romantic life, your work life, your life when you're walking around as a man on the street, that is, I think, the real heart now of change. And I think the more men who are willing to reflect, the better. The current Delhi market, the meat market, the mating market, whatever you want to call it, whichever market you occupy, feels to me like this combination of a Mad Men episode from the earlier seasons and a Jane Austen novel. (laughs) Because I do believe that we are, you know, what is so spectacular about all these kinds of art? I think they capture this, this churn. And I think you know, we are in it. I think all of us, I really, I wanted anyone who read the book and I want all of us to know that if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling cut up as a young woman navigating these terrible apps, number one, we've got you. Like all of us feel the same way. And the second thing I want you to know is that there is a structural reason you're feeling this way because you are doing something that is nothing short of revolution. Your decision to be on these apps, your decision to like have the money to have a mobile phone, all of these things are very unusual in the history of our country. So, of course, you're going to feel shitty and lonely because you're doing something just like all those characters on Mad Men, which is so different. So I'm actually excited. Like I feel like bring on the bad feelings and whatever else because... I think as long as we can acknowledge them and have an open conversation about them in our culture as opposed to suppressing them, which is what some people would like us to do, I'm very hopeful. I love hearing that hope. I love hearing that hope. And what you just said is so important that if you feel lonely, if you feel isolated, to remember what you're doing is revolutionary and that that takes bravery and courage. You know, one other issue that you talk about in the book is bargaining which I think is really important to choice. And I was wondering if you can tell us about what you observed about women's desire to bargain and ability to bargain across generations. And if for our listeners, anyone listening to this podcast, if there's anything that they should keep in mind when they're doing that bargaining on their own. Yeah, so firstly, we should thank generations of feminists and feminist economists because they worked on this theory of intra-household bargaining. So for those, again, who are interested, please read some of this literature. It's really wonderful, particularly the work of Naila Kabir. Now, one of the things, you know, I I really wanted to convey through the book is that a feminist life is never black or white. We do live in a culture right now which sort of thinks of feminism as ticking some boxes, right? Like if you do X, then you're a feminist. If you do Y, then, you know, you're leading a feminist life or you can be cancelled or something. One of the things you realize in the book is that actually each of these women is based on these enhanced expectations we talked about is trying to achieve something more for her well-being. 
and it could be very different things for someone it's a better body for some it is more sexual adventure for some it is having a job and a house that is your own right a space that is your own and for all in fact in the book it's to be able to watch sharukh without any problems anyone's permission right like that is something they all think of it's such an important part of their well-being now when you start to negotiate for more better well-being it is a negotiation you know you're not going to end up immediately then you're not going to get this is not a zero sum game you're not going to get everything or you're not going to get zero and i think in the book you see different women are able to achieve some parts of their hopes and expectations some things they have to let go of and that's where sharuk kind of helps because you know when you let go of some things you feel sad you you want to smile you watch him and i think the thing that i want everyone to sort of recognize is that this bargaining is an incremental painful and very slow process my book chronicles 15 years of women's lives and you see through 15 years painfully through slow every day you know changes in interactions little fights little niggles little protest little bit of you know compromise all these women are able to achieve very different aspects of well-being for themselves they are able to achieve at least some parts of what they want for themselves and i think i want everyone who's listening to us to know that we are all constantly bargaining for freedom particularly in india where women's freedoms are so curtailed within family and i also want all of us to recognize that you know to achieve a lot of what we're trying to achieve this will it's a long process and it will take time and you should be patient and kind to yourself this is where art and solidarity and friendships help because each one of us has i think some story to tell about frustrated bargaining and the last thing i would like to tell everyone is let's not judge people based on what their bargaining looks like and what they end up bargaining for and you know for example you take the case of ddlj right like one of sharukh's like big films and i mentioned this in the book so many people will look at that very traditional choice that sharukh's character makes raj to not run away with simran right and they'll say oh that's so toxic and that's so traditional and immediately that sort of discarded in this binary idea what is feminist and progressive but when you listen to how a young woman who makes garments in rural uttar pradesh how she watches this film and this is a woman who has run away from her marriage and has to come back because she realizes it's so unsafe she can't live on her own and she kind of also then ends up falling into this strange kind of love she finds with her husband so she's actually happy you know she says to me well actually that tells me that the character the sharukh played was actually very considerate not cowardly and i was totally confused as it would you mean because i came in from this very westernized you know feminist idea what like you know what is progressive and progressive should have been they should have just abandoned the family and run away together and married and she said no it's because you know simran the lead character in the film she couldn't live on her own it's unsafe to do so she comes she lives in punjab and she said who would pay for her and if for example she ran away with her husband and they had a fight which is very common in marriages who could she rely on if he decided not to support her anymore and this is bargaining right and thinking through all these multiple variables that impact a woman's life and safety security is a very important part of it but we still live in a bubble where sure like if i want to be on my own i can be on my own in bombay or delhi but that is not possible for so many women in our country because the market doesn't allow it our state doesn't support it 
we don't, we're not spending enough. We're not building that infrastructure. I'm sure we will, but it's just not happening at scale right now. What we have is each other and what we have is our families and our loved ones. And so when women are bargaining and from afar, you think that someone has capitulated into like a very traditional female role. Like I judge so many women, you know, who wear pearls and are so perfect. Like, and I talk about it in the book. I realize the amount of violence these women are bargaining with in their personal lives every day. And I've learned to sort of stop. I've retired that judgment gene, wherever it is, it's just gone. And I think that's one thing I do want everyone to know is that I, I'm tired. Like we should just, you know, women, I now have a rule now that I only complain about upper caste elite Indian men. I have stopped <laughs> complaining in public about anybody else. I mean, I may have complaints about lots of people, but I don't want to finger wag towards women, towards queer people. Like I'm not in because I think they have enough on their plate, like because we are all bargaining with this society that is really not designed by us and it's not designed for us. So maybe we can just retire that judgment because it's really it's, it adds to that exhaustion. And let's just judge upper caste elite men. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Rihanna. This was incredible. Thank you for sharing the length and breadth of your knowledge. And, and you know what? I mean, we've discussed this before, but once you win the Nobel Prize. No, sadly. Oh, uh, no. no, uh, let's, no. Let's, let's, I'm not saying never. I'm, so you should know that this is out on the table. I'm very noble myself. <laughs> and that might, that, that might be my only connection to this, but it's happening. Please don't forget that you were on a tiny podcast at some point in time named Women in Labor. Whoever listened to this podcast, you gave them a life-changing listen. Thank you so much. For more information on the podcast, visit womeninlabor.com or search for Women in Labor on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Women in Labor is made by Executive producers, Christina McGillivray, Aditi Mittal, and Laura Quinn. Head of production, Mae Thomas. Senior producer, Divita Oberoi. Chief of staff, Priya Kapoor. Marketing director, Manya Sachdeva. American Center team, Joy King, Porva Jassy, Minjan Bay, and Radhika Sangar. Junior producer, Niket Nake, Junior Editor, Yash Hirve, Mix Engineer, Kartik Kulkarni. This podcast is generously supported by a grant from the American Center New Delhi. The opinions, findings, and conclusions are those of women in labor and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State. Thank you.